Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Miao Song, a distinguished global ICO and board member with over two decades of international IT expertise. Recognized as CIO of the Year by IDG and GDS, featured in the Global ICO 100, Miao is a trailblazer in the realms of global ICOs, board members, women leaders, investment banking, and digital transformation. Fluent in English, Mandarin, and Dutch, she's, she is a strategic visionary with a rich career spanning roles at GLP, Mars, Johnson, and Shell. Miao's leadership at GLP, a global investment giant with over $125 billion in assets under management, underscores her prowess in driving digital and technological transformations. Whether discussing global IT strategies or championing women in leadership, Miao's insights are not to be missed. I've asked her to join us here today to share her story and help us all prepare for a brighter future tomorrow. So Miao, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Thank you, Daryl. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, it's an honor and a pleasure. And before we hop into some of what you're doing now and what lessons learned, how did you even get started in this? That's quite an illustrative career. You speak a lot of languages. Were your parents involved? Is this, were you, did you just follow in your parents' footsteps? Were they involved in business and IT and international trade or, or where did it come from? Actually not. Let me share with you my personal story. I remember vividly that I fell in love uh, with a computer in my high school. You, you would imagine my age <laughs> uh, at that time, which I remember literally that we just had one, one computer. It was Apple, old Apple machine mm. in, in my high school. Uh, at that time, it was almost more than 30 years ago. Um, everybody had to queue to touch that computer. But the moment when I touched the computer, I love it. So I decided, hey, I need to study computer science. Mm -hmm. Not knowing what exactly computer science brought me to, I decided I, I studied anything related to computer science. So my parents, my mom was a doctor and she really wanted me to become a doctor. My dad was an engineer, and, but she's, he, he got nothing to do with computer. But in the end, I said, no, I just want to study that one. So I went to school, college. And then it was one of the best in China, in Beijing. So I went to Beida, Peking University, and I studied information management, which is related to computer science. It was four-year study. I was very happy that I was doing something related to computer science. After graduation, I started to work for uh, Nestle's office, obviously the largest uh, food company, consumer company in the world. Um, I was actually the first IT local employee in nicely China many years ago. So they really? hired me and with everybody expat, they hired me first and then they saw my potential. There's a good part and bad part. The good part is that I got to learn. I really learned a lot in a few years time. But the bad part was I was the only one who could speak the local language. Right. And I had to be involved in everything. So basically, you just imagine 30 years ago in China, not everyone speak English, right? So, right. so I actually did really a lot of things, including setting up the network infrastructure for Nestle new offices. I started to be involved in the first ERP implementation, accounting system, manufacturing, sales and distribution system implementation for more than 10 joint ventures within China but also more than 20 sales offices. The scale was huge. I remember vividly that during a year, within a year, I had to travel all the way from north 
which is during winter time is minus 26 Celsius, wow. all right. the way to the south, which is during winter, which is 26 Celsius. Within a month, because we had to go live ERP all the way uh, to, to support a business. That business covered milk powder production for baby, Nescafe, Milo, ice cream at that time, all kinds of product. But I was mm. extremely happy within two years time frame. We got everybody into the ERP implementation platform. And personally, I learned quite a lot uh, through that project as well as a fresh uh, as a fresh young yeah. person graduated from school not many years. In the middle of 1990s, I think around 1997, I got a year in Switzerland. So Nestle sent me to Switzerland to start to look at global SAP blueprint. That was very early stage. So I spent a what, year- globali- What? The globalizing blueprint? Global SAP. It's a ERP system. Ah, ah okay, okay. Yeah, so I started to look at Global SAP Blueprint in in Switzerland for about a year, and then decided to go back to Asia, and then they moved back to China, to Beijing, and there was a role coming. It was the role of Shell China. Shell, obviously, is one of the largest oil and gas giant company with more than 300, I think 300 to 400 billion revenue. So I, I grew up quite a lot in Shell. I became the CIO for Shell China in 1990s, end of 1990. So all good. I was managing some large project, including collaboration and joint venture with CNUC. It was huge, multi-billion dollar investment, multi-investment, managing their project implementation, the IT strategy, implementation, everything. And then early 2000, I had a career discussion with my boss. So I said, look, if I stay here in the current role, there's no room for me to grow. Right. And he agreed. He, he was very supportive. And he agreed. He said, why don't you think about going work overseas? So I said, where? And he said, how about the Netherlands? Uh, so, <laughs> so random. It's so uh, different. <laughs> it's, a, it's a headquarter. It's a headquarter of the company, right? So the company ah. is double listed. So it used to be double listed in I think you used listing Amsterdam. There was two boards, right? One in London, one in one in The Hague. So yeah. in the end, I said, okay, it's a headquarter. I'm pretty sure I would learn a lot. Um, and then around early 2000, so I moved to the Netherlands, not knowing where it led me, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I didn't go to headquarter right away. So my first job was actually in a in the largest refinery and chemical plant in the world at that time. So the basic the refinery uh, was next to Rotterdam Harbor. So if you now, even nowadays, if you drive passing by Rotterdam Harbor, you still see Shell compound was huge. And just to give you some indication for office workers to drive from one office to another in the refinery, literally take you 10 minutes or between the two, two, two operation center, one to another to refinery to chemical, plant, I had to drive 40 minutes for zero to go to wow. another place. That so is it's huge. Massive. It's huge. It's massive. It's massive. So I became the head of IT of that uh, refinery for three years. I really love it. Um, but I had to actually overcome a lot of challenges. The first one is language. Um, because it's a very local environment, the official language is Dutch, despite a lot of people spoke English, but official language right. was Dutch. Right. So document was written in, in Dutch, uh, presentation was done in Dutch, communication was done in Dutch. So I pick up Dutch 
in six months. So I actually worked very hard to pick up my Dutch, including basically watching TV, reading news, reading newspaper, listen to radio, but also spend extra time to go to go to school, night school, weekend school, you name it. So I pick up language in six months. I was among the expats in the Netherlands who probably did the best. Every time people talk about expats who could speak Dutch, and they just ask me, they, they just remark, talk about my name. It's very yeah. interesting, but it helped. It helped. So a lot, helped for me. sure. It helped a lot of communication. It helped me with stakeholder engagement. I also took extra efforts to learn the business um, because it's very different uh, than when you sit in office, you've got no clue how this refinery, the process from how the factory operate. Uh, I took extra effort. I went to study petrochemical uh, courses, petrochemical industry courses. Oh, I graduated from computer science. Petrochemical is so different. So I spent some time to learn the business, the chemicals, et cetera. That also helped me to uh, talk to, to the business leaders um, and also getting the technology uh, implementation done smoothly. So I, I even spent some time to join the night shifts. So basically the, the way how it runs, right? It's 24 hours, you, you never stop. There are three shifts, right? Eight hour per shift. So I went to the night shift and I talked to people who operate in the night shift and also people you, who use technology to operate the whole refinery. That also helped me quite a lot when I started new initiatives because people knew me and people knew that yeah. I the, the way I talk I understand the business. I know think how things are done. So three years, three years to in the refinery. And I, after that, I was promoted. I managed Shell Europe IT in my second role in, in the Netherlands. All in all, I actually spent about seven years in the Netherlands. Oh. At the end of 2009, Shell decided to build uh, Asia leadership team. So one of the things they, they, they look at is actually sending me to Singapore to really enhance the leadership in, in the East. Um, so they said, hey, do you want to consider to come to Singapore? I said, why not? It's a lovely place. So me and my family, my daughter, everyone. Then we moved. It was quite funny. My daughter was only seven years old. All her time was in the Netherlands, right? Seven years. Yeah. All her life was in the Netherlands. She picked up Dutch. She picked up English, everything. Uh, then we moved to Singapore from a cold weather to very warm. <laughs> the transition was smooth though the transition was very smooth despite my daughter miss her old friends uh, in right. the first months um, right. at seven year old you really miss your old friend right so she right. was crying every day in the first oh, months oh. but after months then she got she met new friends right. in school and you know, everywhere uh, she became really involved in everything in Singapore she loved it so that's how we got settled in Singapore career wise I was doing a global role within Singapore. I was doing strategy role uh, for Shell Downstream for about two years. And it was quite good because it gave me a visibility, but also exposure to the business strategy rather than just IT. So that helped me to build a broader domain knowledge, and but also broader perspective within that role. Then after 2010, the oil, there was a huge downturn of oil industry. 
oil price dropped from $100 per barrel into $40 per barrel. So right. the company was huge. really challenged, huge. Yeah. yeah. So now it's coming back, right? It's now $19 per barrel, uh, but it was huge. So the industry didn't go well. I decided rather than stuck in the oil industry, I need to look at something else. Then I got, got an opportunity with Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson is basically a healthcare company, the largest yep. healthcare company. I worked with them in uh, Tokyo when I was there. Oh, you were? Oh, yeah. yeah. Which sector did you work I was an outside consultant. So I, I got, see. I got involved. Yeah. I was working with Shinsei Bank and Johnson. QA Securities and Tokyo Electron were some of my big clients. So oh, I got I those because I, I didn't have the university pedigree to get put at Microsoft. Our the consulting firm's biggest client was Microsoft, but I didn't have the schooling, but my performance was good enough. I still got I got all the other top clients. So <laughs> I see. Have you been to JNJ Tokyo office? Yes. I'm trying to remember because this is 12 something years ago now. I think I think it was the day. Yes, we did go. Otherwise the team came to us. And we actually even did a team building exercise. I remember uh Sony and Johnson, we took them paintballing. For team ball, and I remember like laughing that I'm getting to shoot executives with paintball guns and being paid really well for it. I remember being <laughs> like, I love my job, like I'm in nature and I'm shooting uh, other. So it's just not not very often do you get to shoot your bosses. So that's the <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I did something. So I, I started with JNJ. I was the original Asia Pacific CIO, Chief Information Officer for JNJ for four years. My hmm. responsibility cover all the Asia countries, China, Japan, you name it, Australia, India, Southeast Asia, Korea, everything. And it's a new industry. What I learned, which I love most of working in healthcare industry was the purpose. Basically, you feel like every day you touch the life of people in different ways, right? You, You either, you help to build a product which save people's lives. You build medicine, you manufacture medicine, which... Uh, save people lives or you or even you don't manufacture a product directly but you're from a technology standpoint you help the company to do their job better through technology one of the things i led was a large project that where we implemented customer relation management system salesforce effectiveness management system but the way i positioned the system information was not uh, about just hey let's get Salesforce in place. We actually look at the touching point. People to the doctor or the hospital, right? How you use digital to to create that momentum and also map that patient journey into the system, identify all the touching point of digital and do something about it is very valuable. And one of the things we build is a one single platform for the Salesforce to do their job efficiently all the way from opportunity management to or signing the contract, consignment management for medical devices, track the conversation with the doctors, but also provide professional trainings to the doctors across Asia. One of the things we did, I still remember very proudly, was when Google Glasses, by the way, Google Glasses never took off. Right. But when Google Glasses came and we we started a pilot that we actually had a live stream between the U.S. doctor and Japan doctor. So we wow. sponsor that. We say, hey, there is a surgery, a physical surgery in the U.S., but the Japan doctor really want to learn and vice versa. So we asked the doctor- the Surgeon to, to wear the Google glasses. glasses. Yeah, to use Google Glass is to record and broadcast the surgery. And we had this professional training capability where we also build our infrastructure 
connect Japan, US, China, Southeast Asia, all, all together. So that basically people can watch that live stream. Right. Uh, and they can even record it. That's amazing uh, experience. Because also the, what you do really, seeing what you do now really already at the front end to help yeah. people to have a better life. Yeah. And that was very purpose. The other part I was thinking back, actually, the part of which I love most was, is not about job. We actually spend a lot, the group of people spend a lot of time to go on charity. For example, there is a charity work uh, when I was in J&J. It's called Operation Smile. Basically, the company sponsored this charity work to to help the kids with palate cleft palate. So basically, the company sponsored the surgery to help kids at early stage to go through the surgery. So I remember hundred no two hundred dollar two hundred fifty dollar. You can basically save one kid because wow. the, the surgery basically cost two hundred fifty dollar. I personally went to that mission. We call the mission in Vietnam quite a few times. And the first time I went to Hui. Have you been to Hui, which is the old, uh, which is the old capital city of Vietnam? And then I went to a uh, Ho Chi Minh city and mm-hmm. somewhere else, I think three times actually. I was very, I still remember the, the, the story because the, the whole mission last one week we had all the doctors from all over the world, uh, people from the Philippines, Canada, Australia, US, and they are doing that for free. They're voluntary and they spend the whole week to help the kids where right? they operate. So we basically had a hospital, local hospital. This was in Vietnam? Doctor. In Vietnam, yeah. yeah. In Vietnam, we had people there and then the doctors, JNJ sponsor for that, each of us donate. Uh, ourselves to help the kids yeah, 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 and it was yeah, yeah. very organized uh, I remember there was once um, because each of us were asked to do voluntary work to support right. the kids uh, I actually met a kid um, I still remember the story I met a very young mom she couldn't speak any English and her communication with me was through a translation right. she looked like she was only 17 she was very tiny and she, I didn't even know I still didn't know how old she was at that time she was holding a baby, which is very cute. The baby was about a year old, and the baby always have the palate cleft, cleft palate. Right. She didn't have any family member accompany her, and she didn't share the story behind her. But then we did the initial scanning, and the kid was suitable for for surgery. So right. the scanning was done Monday, and the surgery was done on Thursday. And then on, on Thursday morning, she came and then they did. Um, so the, the kid was sent to the OR operating room. Uh, but then during the surgery, uh, and then they actually find out because it, suddenly the blood test came back. They find the kid was actually HIV positive. Wow. Uh, and it was almost because if HIV positive, there's a chance that doctor might be infected yeah, as well. Yeah. So I was in the OR room. I actually we were listening to the conversation and the doctor quickly came together. They said, hey, should we continue with this or we should stop? And they decided to save the, the kid. Yeah. They decided they, they, they basically changed to another OR room. They sanitized the other one. They continue with the surgery. So then, because I was with the mom, so they were like, can you talk to the mom? Maybe yeah, you just ask she her. She probably you has can... it too, right? Yeah, it's, so you know... it was a, such a touching story. So I went out and I couldn't find her anymore. So she didn't come back right away. And obviously she probably heard of it and she she just run away. So right. I do, we, we just waited and waited until the surgery was done. The surgery itself was only 45 minutes. 
But then after a few hours, she came back. She was basically crying. Oh, mm. uh, it was the moment. I still even have some picture I had with the baby. But the moment I saw her crying, I started to cry as well. Perhaps $250 for yep. a normal person. You just buy a pair of shoes, even less than a pair of shoes. Now it's 20% of a luxury good. But it's really changed the life I, of someone uh, yeah. in this part of the world. And also the whole story behind it, you would wonder how she, she had no family or company at that mm. time. She determined to travel a few hours by bus yep. to come to the hospital to save her, her kid so that the kid has may lead a much better life yep. than her, than herself. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I think one day, one day I would say the kid will probably doesn't remember what happened to him. No. But, but definitely her life quality, his life quality is different than his mom. Yeah. That is a value we brought into this. It's a really touching story. I think this there's a lot of stories that the part I love of working this is that it's not just about, hey, you go and you collect your paycheck, but mm -hmm. really how you have a purpose yeah. to the work. And and it's amazing how little effort it can take to, to really make a difference in someone else's life. Uh, I did some work with the Bionet Foundation, which buys mosquito nets for kids in mm -hmm. Africa. I, I went and spent nine weeks in Africa, five in... Uh, four weeks in Kenya, five weeks in Uganda. And I got malaria when I was there. My girlfriend and I at the time each got malaria. I got malaria week two. She got week eight. And when I got it, it was bad. Like it was so bad. I was puking everywhere. And it was, I remember I felt like all the bones had been removed from my body. I didn't have traveler's insurance. I was just a kid. I was like 22 or something. And I remember we went to the clinic and they put me on an IV. I got a hospital bed and I was there overnight. And it cost $21 to save my life. $21. Yeah. That's it. $21 to save my life. I had it bad. I was in like a remote village. Mm -hmm. And when, by the time I knew what was wrong, like it was, I was, I needed to be, I needed to be carried. I couldn't walk. And every 30 seconds, a child in Africa dies of malaria. And so anyway, I got involved by now. I just, I really empathize with you. And I've been, I spent two and a half years living in Vietnam. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And when it comes to there, I, I think a lot of people, they travel to these countries and because you're an expat and maybe because you are, you have higher purchasing power, you think it's really great, but you have to look at how the country is set up and how it supports the locals. Cause for a lot of them, they're really struggling. It's not everyone's yeah. story. Like I was in Vietnam for most of COVID and a lot of people I talked to, they're like, Oh, it was great for during COVID. If your laptop class, if you're an expat in your laptop class, sure. But if you were a local, my dog got snatched out of my yard to be eaten because people were hungry. So it's just, again, I love what you're talking about and how talking about the power of IT to bring the world together, to share world-class expertise and make it accessible to people in ways that it's not, not typically. Can you speak a little bit about combining business strategy with IT? Sure, sure. So the so when I work as a CIO, Chief Information Officer, all the way I started with always the business strategy. So it shouldn't start with technology strategy because the technology team exists. Only Important simple reason strategy. there is a business. So otherwise, right. so basically every time I start to understand the business strategy, uh, but also lay out how the technology strategy uh connected or aligned with business strategy. For example, if your company strategy is to engage more with consumer or the patients and the digital capability needs to happen in that direction, let's say you want to do a direct consumer business, right? Then you need to build a digital product 
uh, through technology. And then this digital product will really help consumer to be able to order your product easily, uh, your marketing information, all you know, pushed through that digital application, but also backend, your digital application has to be connected with your supply chain quickly so that it's a seamless consumer or, or patient experience. So that is yeah. how the strategy is connected. So if this thing is doing very well, let me give you an example, e-commerce or direct consumer capability. If you say a simple consumer has to click 10 times to place an order, yes. he or she will probably give up, right? right. You have to look at One the experience you know, without five, within five clicks, everything right. is done. Or facial recognition, whatever, you need to use the technology to make it much simple. Therefore, the experience has to be really elevated. That's right. only one thing. The second one, I think, is really the power of data. Either you collected consumer data or and then all the data or internal external data that help you to analyze and get more insights around unmet needs of the consumer or the customer or patients. Right. And these unmet needs are very valuable information to help the company to creating more new product or services, supply chain, or to enhance their experience, right? All of this can be done through technology nowadays. I would say almost every business is a digital business. I right. have not seen any business still a non-digital business. The question is how you add value through this technology implementation. So that is why I see it's important to connect, align the technology strategy with the business. If your business is focusing on being more efficient, manufacturing, the technology yep. probably will be focusing automation, helping people to, to run product, to improve right. their productivity, right. Right. lean out right. the processes, uh, automate the processes, et cetera, right? If your strategy is actually grow your business and enhance customer experience, then the digital strategy and tech strategy should be on focusing on how you look at the touching point of with the customer and for every single touching point, how you actually, what type of technology is involved, how you create that, better seamless experience through digital. All of these are so critical before before the an IT project or initiative gets started. I love this. Let me active listen back. So first off, you always learn the business strategy first and then you build the tech strategy to support it. If I understand correctly, you always look at all the end user touch points and the customer or the patient journey. So what are all the touch points in the business to support the customer journey? And you, it sounds like you map all of that out, including the strategy to try to create an integrated whole versus just focus on one isolated piece. You really step back and look at the big picture. Who are all the stakeholders? How are they using it? I love when you were talking about your story earlier, people may have missed this, but one, you made sure that you knew the market. And in the early example, when you talked about when you went to the Netherlands, you, the, your, the employees at the giant refinery, that was your customer base, you as an yeah. individual. So you made sure that you could speak their language, that you knew their culture, that you integrated in six months, you did a deep dive, really committed to assimilating into their culture. And then you did day and night shifts to understand the whole like ecosystem, so to speak, of how everything works. And then you said you to study the business of petrochemicals. And now, even now you talk about learning the business, the strategy of the business first. And now with this kind of market intelligence, which is the customers that the business serves and the staff that are there to create and support that customer journey with all this mapped out in your mind. Now you look to create a seamless integrated whole where you're also taking a look at having simplicity, five clicks or less, and also make sure that you're collecting all the data that you can 
because data can be incredibly powerful, but not if you're not collecting it. And then it sounds like you have to also make sure you present it in meaningful ways. I want to yeah. ask now, what are the biggest mistakes that you see your clients or other people making? Uh, I think the biggest mistake some of the companies are uh, making was, I believe there was a, you know, let's say a few years ago, right? Two years ago, before, right before COVID or even during COVID, the buzzword was digital transformation, right? So look right. at it. Everyone is on digital transformation. If you don't even talk about it or do it, you're out. I think the big mistake they made is that they, they just do digital transformation for the sake of transformation. Right. They miss a point that in the end, digital transformation has to solve the business. Yeah. And that was amazing. As a result, many companies spend billions, dollars, millions uh, in, in investing in technology without even looking at what is the return of investment without even looking at where is the value added. I'll give an example, right? That's, we all talk about data. Used to be big data was a very buzzword. Now, obviously, AI, machine learning. But when big data was a buzzword and many companies spend time to just put whatever data they have into their data repository um, without knowing what exactly they want to extract or insights or the use cases from data. As a result, I think many organizations, regardless of their industry, they now have a challenge of, first of all, data governance. After they throw data into a infrastructure, right, a data lake, whatever, and then they find out now, actually, not all data are valuable, let's say, right. or the data quality is not right. Uh, anyway, there are a lot of rubbish in their data lake. Now right. they have trouble to see, hey, now we have to clean it, we have to structure it, we have managed it. So right. they're not into trouble. And I believe many companies are doing that now. The second one is uh, they forget that they need to also think about where are these data serve the use cases, right? And they, they hire a bunch of data scientists and just come say, look, we have data. Yeah. You know, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. you're a scientist, right? You just mine data, right? Without clear definition on what you want to achieve. Do you want to achieve supply chain efficiency? Do you want to understand why your manufacturing is not efficient? Do you want to understand your product quality issue? Do you want to understand the drug discovery or consumer insights, right? It has to be very clear goal at the beginning. I do think these are very common mistakes yeah. a lot of organizations made simply because everybody has to do digital transformation. Mm, so they didn't begin with the end in mind. They did it for the sake of doing it because they should do it. And they weren't thinking about what they were doing as they went through the motions is what it's. Yeah. Like. The other mistake a lot of company made was really a, everybody saying technology is obsolete. Let's say I'll give example, say, hey, these weren't out of support. We need to migrate. But when they migrate from old to new, they just forgot to improve the business processes, efficiency and productivity. Mm. They basically migrate from A to B, but A to B is exactly the same practice. Basically, in the end, they spend the millions dollar, million dollars or multi-million yep. or even trillion dollar, just bring a new technology platform, which they still run the same business process without any improvement, right? That's a common mistake a lot of companies made simply because IT said, oh, system is old, it's not out of support, let's implement a new system without thinking through what other value you bring. Do you have to look at the business right. practice, bring the best practice in your processes before you even start system implementation? Yeah, yeah. so I, it sounds like, again, 
not really looking at the big picture, just getting it done, migrating because they should migrate versus looking at if we're going to migrate, how do we migrate and improve? How do we constantly improve and refine? What was the best? Because in some cases, the devil might be better than the devil you don't know. So yeah. if you, if you got to move things, it's better to just, again, almost start from the beginning, at the very beginning again, and rebuild from the ground up. You talk about reinventing ourselves and with technology innovating so fast. I think it's really important that everybody keeps the main thing. And then that's obviously serving the end user, the customer and providing products and services that are excellent of high quality and caliber in a way that customers want it in an easy to use ways as well. So I love this because it doesn't, you don't seem attached to processes and like legacy beyond what's useful for the ultimate goal. But I love that it's very strategic in the process and, and a very calm process of let's, let's measure twice, cut once. Let's really take some extra time to do the research, understand the situation and the problem, and then proceed versus mm -hmm. just rush in. Now, is that a fair assessment? Would yeah, you agree? it is. It is. Another example was uh, cloud transformation, right? Just yeah, imagine that's so silly. Yeah. That's what, that was really, everybody is, hey, let's do cloud transformation. Let's move right. everything to cloud, right? Yeah. Yes, the direction is right, but you need to figure out what is the business benefit? What's the value? And why? Yeah. Why? You have to talk about why before <laughs> yeah. you talk about how. And I see a lot of, including a lot of industry conference, right? If you go to any conference, all cloud, let's do cloud. Right. Nobody right. even talk about why. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that all the cloud is someone else's computer. That's all the, yeah. that's all the cloud is. It's just someone else's computer. And so if you're going to put your data in the cloud, all of a sudden, it's just like letting somebody else take care of your pet or child. Are they going to do a good job with it? Are they going to take care of it and keep it safe? And what happens in the event of an emergency? Are they going to, who yeah. are they going to there's all these concerns where you may create a dozen more problems by now doing the trendy thing when you don't have a solid reason why you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So not the cloud is the right direction, but you need to talk about why first and then talk about what and how uh, mm. and when. So all of this has to be listed out before you even jump into cloud transformation. Oh, right. I use analogy about, it looks like you have your own house, you live in your own house, you buy it or you rent a house, right? Cloud right. is like you rent a house. It, it's basically that analogy. Now, I want to ask, because I know we're getting up on the top of the hour. This has been a very insightful call. What do you think are some of the top trends and maybe technologies or developments that over the next 5, 10, 15 years that are on your radar, you're keeping a close eye on that you think the listeners need to pay attention to as well? Absolutely. So the first one is generative AI, which is not even, which is very hot now. And as a company, GLP, we are pilot under my leadership. We are piloting generative AI already. We have seen very uh, successful early pilot leveraging generative AI uh, mm. to build powerful use cases. Things like building our own chatbot within yep. the organization uh, to talk to our internal employees for anything, any HR policy, travel policy, information. The second use case we build was cognitive search. So we build cognitive search to allow our customers or potential customers to search um, our services and product worldwide. So that has been built. Uh, the third one we build, we call the data uh, chat with your data. So basically we loaded quite powerful information 
uh, into a secure environment, we build generative AI uh, to help them to summarize and find information in a fastest fashion. Uh, number four is automatic newsletter. Uh, so we have a research arm uh, for investment. So every now every day at 8.30, the bot wrote email and send email automatically to the research team. For example, if they want to know what's the trend of EV car or EV battery, every morning at 8.30, they receive it. Boom, internal data, external data, social listening, all there. And it's, wow. we have been running this for two months. I love this. Yeah, I think definitely the first one is AI and machine learning. The second one, I think it will be quantum computing, which was there for years. But again, it never, because of these quantum computing resources, all uh, taken by the large firms, right? You know, IBM, Google, Microsoft, right. etc. It, it hasn't really taken off right. fast as AI for some reason. But I do think computing with all the all the whole few thing about AI, we need much more powerful computing power. Quantum computing will be another trend. I also think the third trend will be much easier is out-of-box capability in digital. Let's say in the past, you want to you build your own app and you have to integrate it with your backend, the traditional enterprise IT system all the time. Therefore, you build API hub, you, you integrate. I do think that approach might be might be challenged in the longer term. I think there will be more faster way of building your app, maybe automation, maybe just someone builds something, you choose, let's say, customer engagement, you choose one, then you just customize, config that one, and bomb you launch it, rather than right. you build it from the ground. I also think I also think there will be some breaking through technology in AI, in neuroscience, in the bioscience. AI in bioscience will definitely take off. It, it did take off in the past few years, but we have not seen anything break through. But I do think AI in neuroscience well, will, will break there, through. There actually was, but they have to do the trials. So there was yeah. a study. I eat studies like candy, maybe uh -huh. not the last couple of months because I've been so busy, but for the last few years, I've been eating published studies like candy. And there was mm -hmm. a a team that used machine learning to try to figure out what drug combination would exponentially improve human lifespan. And they came up yeah. with three cocktails, I think, and one seemed the best case. And it's yeah. actually got components of things that we already are aware of. Like a lot of people know that metformin, which is given to diabetics, yeah. has been shown. Now there is controversy around if it helps people without diabetes, but this thing was like, there was an antifungal there was a metformin. I think there was even an mTOR analog, which is like rapamycin. Anyways, interesting that there is major breakthroughs ha throughs happening yeah. now. They just haven't quite trickled down yet. So yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree think that area, hardware will really take up, probably, as you mentioned, move faster than yeah. before. Let's take another example, painkiller opioid addiction yeah. in the US. I'm sorry, I, I talk like I'm a politician. I can't. But no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> See, this... It's such a big problem, has been there for years and years, right? Well, to be fair, Meow, it's there because it's profitable. If, if yeah. you look at our world and data, they, they've actually manipulated the chart a couple of times. I feel like it's to make it visually less striking in the sense of when yeah. I first saw it, I just clearly, it spoke to me and said, the US health system is designed for profit, not performance. The, the per capita cost of healthcare in the US is over double the, average, yeah. the world average and the performance 
is not even middle of the pack. It's lower yes. middle yeah. of the pack. And then you talk about the opioid crisis and these other things. I'm a full on, I fully believe that there is conspiring corporations that big pharma and big food have a partnership because you see yeah. everywhere Western food companies go, cardiovascular diseases, cancers, diabetes yeah. skyrocket. And I think there's this partnership where food companies get people sick and the pharma companies get you on a monthly subscription of meds and they just push you back and forth because there's a ton of money and sick people. Healthy yeah. people don't tend to spend a lot on those. And yeah, that's, yeah. sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to take yes. it there, but it's just, you mentioned the opioid crisis and it the family is. that it got busted from that, they made something like $6 billion and they were fined. They tried to get a deal done where basically they pay $2 billion in damages and then they can't yeah. be. That's it. No more further. We're done. There's no more criminal charges, but they made six and they're going to pay two. It, it, the cost, what is it? The I'm brain farting here, but the, the I forgive me. I've forgotten the term, but the cost of doing business, so to speak, is all like the, it comes out in the wash. It's still profitable to yeah. have paid all those, to pay it, to have done that, to commit that crime. I think it was an intentional crime where they paid and there's a ton of data to prove this, that they yeah. just look up. Uh, pharma big pharmaceutical companies. I did some research. They've paid over 20 billion in criminal and civil fines yeah. in a 10 year span leading up to 2012, I think it was. And it's all for fraudulent marketing, paying kickbacks and bribes and marketing known dangerous products. I'm sorry, I don't know if that's where you wanted to yeah, go. Yeah, I know you, what yeah. you're talking about is true. And also I think, honestly, it's, it's a system issue, right? It's a holistic yeah. system issue, but also political issue. And there's no direct solve uh, at the moment. I right. think, I actually think if someone can develop some technology, for example, let's say right. if AI That's machine funny. learning technology, even AR gamification, help people to just relieve pain. Some technology, different technology, rather than people just say, hey, just take painkiller over yeah. the counter, yeah. right? because it's so easy, get painkiller. Pain Please yeah. don't do that anymore. Let's think about different way, alternative, alternative technology will help yeah. uh, and let's create something different breaking through to help people to live a better life but also let's not make profit from that sinful product yeah. isn't it yeah, yeah 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 i think that's a really key point that as these technologies emerge we really have to make sure that they're focused in the pursuit of universal truth because if they're used in any way to censor or for to exploit and profit from crises uh, it becomes an incredibly dangerous weapon. I, the example that I heard for it was, we're, we don't seek out chimpanzees and slaughter them. We may have killed some and displaced some through progressing our civilization, but we don't seek and destroy them. Whereas if you have an AI that is a censorship bot, like we saw happen throughout the pandemic, all this, right? Censoring, it is a seek and destroy. It yeah. is find people talking about this and deplatform, censor them, shadow ban them. And the scientific process, you need the largest data set that you can begin with. And then you get rid of the bad data and then you work from that. If you have an incomplete data set, it's going to bias your results, which can be fatal in certain yeah. circumstances. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on all of this. Now, this, is, this has been a really great interview. I've got two, three pages of notes here. I believe in, and trust all your insights. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that I should have asked you about? Yeah, I think the last one I would bring is because oh, we touch AI machine learning. I think yeah. the, the topic ethical AI, really, you touched it a little bit around hey, using the right data for AI yeah. to, to generate the right decision, but also there are 
there is a sophisticated problem as well around biased AI, the set of data you use generate wrong decision because there is a bias, right? You decided yes. when AI solution was designed. I saw that they did that with facial recognition technology. The data set that they had used was mostly white and Asian, so it couldn't yeah. recognize African faces. And that was something there. It's, it was, there was no malicious intent, but you built racism into the system just off of the data set. And that's where, again, we really have to be careful as we move forward. Yeah. This. I agree. I agree. Yeah. There was another example. I wouldn't mention the organization. It's a very famous education organization for high school during COVID. Um, they couldn't conduct exam. So mm -hmm. they, they create an idea. They use AI uh, to give a, um, a score to every single student in high school. Uh, but then what they did, they just use a school historical data. Uh, mm -hmm. for international school. It's right. very dangerous because right. they basically assume yeah. it doesn't they basically assume that every everyone in the school, if there's a mediocre school, everyone is not doing well. But right. they, they forgot there are some smart kids, very good students in the mediocre school. Yeah. And that created a huge trouble about it because they use that score for college application. And yeah. my daughter was one of the victims in that year because yeah. after I find out how they calculate that. It doesn't even make sense. This is yeah. a clear bias. Then yep. they will assume, hey, this is a great school. Everyone is doing well. No, that's not right. You have a bad student in good school, but you also have an excellent student in mediocre school. Yeah, this, is, this is a, so many things there AI can do, really remove those bias, make sure it's equal. It's more for everybody. AI It's not just for a small group of people. A thousand percent, a thousand percent. Meow, I, I feel like I got to get you back on so we can yeah. go deeper into some of these topics at some point. <laughs> if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to reach out, what are some of the best ways for them to connect? So I have, I have a LinkedIn. So you can find me, Meow Song, Singapore in LinkedIn. Or maybe just, I will leave my personal email to you as well. Okay, perfect. So for those that want to reach out and connect, you can find her on LinkedIn, M-I-A-O-S-O-N-G. She's in Singapore. We found her if she's at GLP. And I went to Peking University. Meow, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an honor and a pleasure. I, like I said, I have a couple of pages of notes. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much knowing you've got your own family, your own direct reports, your own following, lots of people to, to take care of. Thank you for coming and sharing with my audience and I so we can all be a little bit prepared for this technological future. Thank you, Daryl. Excellent. Great talking to you.